Welcome to Logos Live. I'm Robert Martin, Director of the City Bible Forum in Melbourne, and I'm your host for the show. Logos is Greek for word or message, and Logos Live engages the Christian message before a live audience in the CBD of Melbourne. And do we have a live audience here today? Yes! And we also aim to have a bit of fun. Who said exploring the big questions of life shouldn't be enjoyable? What are the casualties of your busy life? How do you go beyond merely surviving? In this series of Logos Live, Time Poor, Soul Rich, we engage the difficulties busy workers face in developing a rich soul. And we're privileged to have the author of a recent book, Time Poor, Soul Rich, join us. Anne Winkle has worked in education, legal recruitment, and runs her own executive search business at Delta Partners. Anne also wrote Time Poor, Soul Rich to help the inescapably busy develop a rich soul. Please welcome Anne Winkle. Thanks, Anne. Okay. Enthusi- enthusiastic welcome there, Anne. Welcome back. It's terrific to have you. Now, Anne, Anne's book features the stories of many inspiring women, and today we're privileged to be joined by one of them, Samantha Marks. Samantha is a QC. She's been a barrister for over 20 years and was appointed senior counsel in 2010. She's married with three children. Please welcome Samantha Marks. <laughs> Now, as we start Logos Live, we usually like to hear a little bit about our guests. Samantha, maybe perhaps could you tell us a little bit about what convinced you to become a a Christian believer? Well, when I was young, I had a a grandmother who used to take me along to church with her um, whenever I stayed with her, which was fairly regularly. And through that, I first came in contact with a wonderful group of people. And in the years that I was growing up, we travelled overseas a lot. I'd been to six schools by the time I was 12 and um, lived in three countries. And everywhere I went, I used to go and find a local church who always welcomed me. And I found a great group of people who really felt there was a lot more to life than just who you were. It was about what you did, what you did for other people, and um, learning about God. And that was a most wonderful introduction and a great start to life. Fantastic. Terrific. Well, today we're talking about intimacy. Now, when a vice chairman of Warburg's bank was once asked what he thought was the greatest casualty of a busy life, his response related to intimacy Now, intimacy means more than physical intimacy, doesn't it, Anne? So what exactly is intimacy? Yeah, I think I think the thing about intimacy is it, it's something deeper than just that sort of fleeting, shallow relationship that we can all foster mm-hmm. in our day-to-day busy lives. I tell the story in the book of when I went home for Christmas to Adelaide once and, and I remember getting to the end of the day and kicking myself that I'd spent all day with my family who live in another state and I felt like I hadn't had a real real conversation with anybody it was just very kind of superficial and I regretted it because I hadn't been intentional about just going a bit deeper and finding out where people were at and you know it was just all very gonna yeah. hurrah hurrah yeah. Christmas so what's sad what, yeah so how do you understand intimacy I'm really glad for that clarification because when I told a couple of people I was going to talk about intimacy I think they thought I was planning to be the next Bettina aunt or something <laughs> <laughs> to me intimacy is about the deep relationships it's about the relationships with the dearest people in your family with your close friends perhaps with the other people you connect with but you actually have a real conversation with rather than how's the weather and how's the footy going and it's something we all deeply need now a song which explores the absence of relational intimacy is the 1974 classic by henry chapin cats in the cradle now the song is about a father who's too busy with work to spend time with his son and and the lyrics of the cats in the cradle appear in your book um why, why did you include them 
Uh, I actually include them in a section about should we feel guilty for the yeah. way we live. <laughs> so I was looking at the, the the questionable, you know, the question of whether or not we should feel guilty in our in our work. And my answer is it depends. Sometimes it's our conscience working really well, and sometimes we shouldn't be feeling guilty because it's just somebody else projecting their their things on us. Mm. But that song's a beautiful example of um, somebody who regrets later in life how they've worked and related to family so I, I it's a good example of, of the lack of intimacy with children. If you were to write your own version of Cats in the Cradle including items from your own childhood what things would you choose? Well uh, for me a lot of it would come back down to, to the classics of all the things you can do with children it's the time you have with them that they remember it's it's the holidays it's the time your folks had time to go for a walk with you it's the laughs around the dinner table it's the stories it's the little rituals that every family builds up so with us it might have been spaghetti on a Sunday night when everyone was home and it was always the same dinner and we wanted it even when I became a vegetarian my one exception for those three years I was a vegetarian was mum's spaghetti bolognese on a Sunday (laughs) night so I know everyone will write to me saying you're not a vegetarian but that was it and all of those things as a a kid um, are what make it home and what make it family, I think. Mm. What sort of things would you include, Anne? Anything? Oh, well, if we're talking about meals, it has to be the Chico roll or the fish and chips by the lake when we were kids. (laughs) But I I loved the horse, riding the horse and actually being on my own. Now, that doesn't fit into intimacy, does it? Although it was a good relationship with my horse. (laughs) (laughs) And fishing with my dad, definitely. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was thinking about it for myself, and I'd include BMX bikes and computer games, and Luke Skywalker and my model trains, but it's probably <laughs> so probably not say let's say it's not say so, there, there was yo-yo crazes, a little, I little less that. poetic. Okay. And Pac-Man that really dates me. Pac-Man. <laughs> now, does Chapin's song touch a nerve with relationships within our families? I mean, you've mentioned before about perhaps guilt, but perhaps revealing a lack of relational intimacy common to human experience in the modern world. I think it it absolutely does and I think the fact that that song was so popular shows that something that affects everyone. We're all madly trying to fit so much in and along the way often it's the people that matter most to us that can we can let fall by the wayside because we can take them for granted and it's something pretty universal and that's why that song touches a nerve. Yeah, I I agree with that. I don't know if you're aware, but it was actually his wife who wrote that song as a poem originally, and then he put it to music. So it's a joint effort from two parents. Um, And it it does reflect on the fact that the children pick up the habits of the parents and repeat them. So, you know, when we model to children how to behave and live in our lives and how to handle relationships versus work, etc., the, the song's so powerful because it shows that that is passed on to the next generation and they do it again. And I might say that song meant a lot to me even when I was a little kid. I can remember hearing how busy the dad was and we'll do it later and we'll do it soon, son, and then you'd get to the bit where the son was so busy. And even as my children were growing up, I'd sometimes think about that and think, I need to give them the time now. And I want to model them seeing me giving my mum time and my grandmother. Uh, and hopefully then when it's my turn, it comes back too. <laughs> Now, Samantha, you've been practising law for over 20 years and you're now a QC, Queen's Counsel. What is a QC and what does one do? What it's come to mean is it's really a mark that you're in a certain um, percentile. You've been picked out by, in our case, um, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court after talking to um, many people in the profession as being um, at a particular level of the profession. And I imagine that being a QC affects your time. 
Or well, the process of getting there affects your time? Certainly um, being a barrister is something that can be pretty labour intensive. When you're in the middle of a trial or you've got a number of matters coming up, it's very, very busy. And um, it's no excuse to say, well, I'll get to that later. If you need it in court, if the cross-examination's happening tomorrow, the, what the client needs is in your hands. So it's pretty labour intensive at times. Um, and yes, it does. Yeah. So that means, and it's labour intensive, that means you've just got to stay up until it's done? Yeah. Right. I mean, traditionally, when I've got a lot on, I like to wake up very early. Um, and I always have, even when I was at school. So I'd rather make a start at, say, 4am, get a good few hours in while it's so peaceful, the whole household's asleep, and then head on into work. My husband works the other way around and works late. So that was an issue when we first got together, finding some time together. <laughs> you find time <laughs> together won't... at 3am, perhaps, well, when you're getting I, up and I he's going to I tried to sit bed. up late and work with him and then get up late and work early, and it didn't work too well. But the reality is everyone finds time when they need to. And for me, um, yes, it's very busy like that. You do what you need to do when you need to do it. But for me, part of making time for the other things that matter is ensuring that after a period of great busyness, I'll slot in time to just be and time to go and do other things. And I'll, I'll literally take myself out of action to do that, whether it's for half a day, a day or a holiday make mm. sure I do it. So how do you manage that? Managing um, your time with all the different demands, etc.? Well, I use an electronic diary and I have for years that matches up to my computer, iPad, etc. Anyone could do it anyway, but for me it's colour-coded, um, which works for me because I had a different colour for everyone in the family. My kids are now older, they're 13, um, 18 and 20, but when they were little and you're trying to check which one's due at basketball and which one's due, due at dance and who's got this on for school and meanwhile when am I in court and when is my husband got that it was really useful to be able to see who needs to be where and then if it wasn't me coordinating it help it to happen and also I've always tended to put in other things that matter that coffee with a friend that walk that I need in the morning if I'm really busy I'll even sit down and go I'm going to have a swim then I'm going to do this you don't always stick to it, but actually putting it down, thinking about when you're going to have your downtime as well as your busy time, makes you far more likely to do it. And so that's worked for me. Mm. Any rationale behind what colours are allocated to which people? Uh, well, no, there wasn't particularly. I mean, maybe it's a coincidence that my husband's in red. I mean, that's meant to be a bit of a power colour, isn't it? Um, but I do have, I might say, one for, for work and one for my own personal stuff as well, because it can help me to look at my week and go, yep, lots and lots of work there where's the time for my friends and family where's the time when I'm just going to chill out and get to the gym it helps to see that everything's balancing out and I don't try and make things balance out from week to week I don't think most of us can you can have a really busy time at work or you can be really busy with family members or something that's going on I try and think of it more as balancing out over the course of a few months and making sure there's time for all those things because busy though we all can be we are human beings in the end, not human doings, as the old saying goes. Excellent. Now, as part of Logos Live, we do reflect on the scriptures, the Logos, and we're going to explore a couple of different passages which resonate with the experience of our guests here today. Now, the first passage is a beautiful passage from 1 Corinthians describing the character of love. It's from 1 Corinthians 13, and I'll read verses 4 to 7. It says, Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast. It is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Now the passage calls for uh, loving others against pursuing self-interest. How does this relate to intimacy? 
One of the things that I've found is, with my husband in particular, we've always had a view that kindness is probably the most important thing in a marriage, that choosing to be kind rather than turn around and slam the door or you know, say the harsh word is, mm. is really important, and it's a discipline. And I think if you choose ahead of time that you'll always choose kindness rather than you know, the negative, it makes such a difference. You know, you know that other person's on your side mm. and that they're there to back you up. The other thing I love in that passage is the keeps no record of wrongs <laughs> because why I've you, actually got a bad memory, so that's probably a good thing. But the idea that we, you know, we tot up all the bad things that people do to us that we, we recall them years later, or it just is so toxic, isn't it? And mm. and that's good advice, I reckon, to not can keep it, can it. I how, s- does, how does a lawyer relate to keeping record of wrongs? Though? Isn't that well, part of your job? <laughs> so. Can, can I say um, that one of the things I remember really liking as a phrase was when I heard um, Therese Rudd talk about putting something in the forgettery. Something had happened and she was going to put it in the forgettery and I thought, what a great idea. Someone does something you don't like and you decide to move on. You don't keep thinking about it. You don't keep going back about it. You don't keep totting it up as to all the other things they did wrong, ready for that next time to throw it back at them. You pop it in the forgettery and you move on. Hmm. And I think that's what not keeping a record of wrongs is. From a legal perspective, yes, if you need to get somewhere in actually pursuing an action, try and get to a settlement, try and get to a result in court, you might need to note those wrongs along the way. But very often what really is happening is an attempt to get to a resolution. And when you get to that resolution, um, Abraham Lincoln said the lawyer has a um, superior opportunity as a lawmaker to be a peacemaker. Mm -hmm. And that's often what the good lawyers can do. And I might say that phrase from Corinthians seems to me to apply to across the board to to good people generally. And I would say many of those qualities I'd see in in good lawyers. They are patient. They are kind. They're not striving. They're not trying to run people down. Mm. They're dealing courteously with those they come across. It doesn't stop you being firm, getting your position across. But the older I get, the more I think those qualities are what help us um, be wise and and be able to deal with people in a way that makes them able to hear us Mm. and makes us have deeper relationships. So how does this passage then affect you and your relationships? You've touched on some of those things, but how else does it affect you and your relationships? There's another um, quote that I rather like of of Maya Angelou where she said, I've learnt that people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did but they will never forget how you made them feel. And I think all of those different qualities that you were just read out there are part of what make people feel as though you care about them Mm -hmm. and that you matter. And if you're going to talk about intimacy and building that up with the people you care about, it's how you respond. And there's a great... You can be very intentional about that. Anne talks about her decision to always be kind in her dealings with her husband. In a really simple way, I... I hadn't occurred to me this was anything unusual till I mentioned to a friend and she said, oh, I'm going to do that. She'd been complaining, as people do, offloading about the fact she'd get home at night, she's a single mum and the kids wouldn't have done anything at home and it's a mess and she's got to walk in and put on the dish, do everything, do dinner. I see lots of nodding in the audience. I have <laughs> all been there. And I was saying, look, I know, I know what that can feel like and the temptation is to blow us straight off with why are you sitting there watching TV when there's this to be done? I said, what I try and do is... Before I open the door, I'll think to myself, I'm about to walk into the house with some of the people I love most dearly. And I try and make that first introduction, hello, how wonderful to see you, how's your day been? Later on, you can get to the rest, but when you do it from an intentional, loving kindness, appreciation of of all that you have and what they mean to you, you have a very different conversation. 
Oh, that's made me feel really bad about the thing I said when I got home the other night. <laughs> but boy, that's good advice. It's aspirational. I, I have to say, don't do it all the time. It doesn't, doesn't always happen. <laughs> no, I think that, that's a fabulous tip, Samantha. And I think, you know, part of the whole intimacy game is about connecting with people on a deeper level and, and knowing how they've gone in the day and, 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 and being interested to know what's been going on in their lives rather mm. than sort of just to dealing with what's ever urgent in your face, you know, it's, mm. it's taking that extra step and asking that extra question. Mm. A couple of questions have come in which, which we can just use to help stimulate this. Is this like Q&A and a, a like live Q&A. Twitter feed? Yeah, it's not quite live Twitter feed. A question has come in from someone who appears to be a lawyer. Um, and uh, so don't, don't get scared, it's okay. So what strategies in a law firm or other companies would you have implemented, if any, to create an environment that fosters intimacy in the workplace and work-life balance on behalf of your employees? I think Anne should answer that because she's actually got a business. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I work sh- for myself. I'll tell you something that happened in an old business I worked in before I ran my own business. My boss used to always have drinks on a Friday night and snacks and things and it was amazing how when you just put down the tools and you had a drink together not it didn't have to be alcoholic but you know in her case she always had a bottle of wine in the fridge but it was always really good to sit down have a drink together have a nibble of some some goodies and just chat about life apart from work Mm. so that was just once a week and it and it worked well for our business Mm. yeah and I suppose some of the things that I do find when I'm with colleagues and you're all working away on all your cases but just to have breaks, to go, f- to go for walks, to have cups of coffee, to take the chance to stop and find out what's going on and sometimes to ask questions that go beyond, um, you know, did you win or uh, what's the weather like, can be really um, enriching for everybody. Mm, and mm. It, it makes it more fun. And that's intimacy as well when someone actually will talk to you about what's actually going on and you check if they're okay and on you go. So what advice would you give to people who out here who are, or who are listening who are struggling with relational intimacy? For me, I would say that there is always something we can do to improve. I mean, I was kindly asked by Anne to come and talk along. Anne's written a book about it. I reckon any of the people sitting in this room and anyone listening could sit down and write a a book or certainly an article with ideas of what they do. I think that if you can keep thinking, what's something I can do today that I haven't done before? How can I improve even a little bit? All those incremental changes help. Ask other people. And sometimes people will say that to me, how do you fit it in? I'll give them a few ideas. They'll bounce back a few with me. Mm. Um, remember that you, you don't stop in time. You can always keep improving. And if your goal is to really be present for the people you care about and really make a difference, then there's always different things you can learn and grow in. Mm. Now, Proverbs 31, one of the other logos of the days we're looking at today, describes a woman of noble character. She's a successful businesswoman, a hard worker, caring, generous and wise. She successfully negotiates her business, the community and her family. Samantha, do you resonate with this woman at all? Well, she, she sounds wonderful. She sounds absolutely <laughs> aspirational. <laughs> um, do you resonate with her, in, perhaps in verse 15, where she gets up while it's still night, she provides food for her family and portions for her female servants? <laughs> Does... Oh, I like that, especially the female servants. No. Um, 
they're, yes, they're no, children, s- are they? Is that serious, <laughs> seriously, I suppose, I suppose, yes. She's a great model, that lady, of someone who was doing all of it. And sometimes people talk about work-life balance, which I think is a false dichotomy. We don't have life on the one hand full of great things and work on the other. Work, no matter what we're doing, is part of our lives. We're engaging with other people. It's how we contribute often a lot to our communities. It is how we put food and the table and houses overhead and do other things. So I think it's being aware in all of it um, and being aware that putting it all together sometimes takes thinking about it. I bet that lady in Proverbs had to think sometimes about how to fit all of that in Mm. and in the end that's what this conversation is about. Mm. Well, one of the ways in which she puts it all together is actually in the way that the poem concludes, which is in verse 30, and it says that charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. So, Anne, why is fear of the Lord important? Now, I've got an interesting answer to this. Once when I visited Italy when I was quite young, I formed a view as to why fear of the Lord was important. And I I was intrigued as to know how the Mafia and the Catholic Church could coexist so well in Italy. And what dawned on me is that when you go around Italy, every time you see a picture of Jesus, he's either a chubby baby or a limpy, wimpy corpse on the cross. But the risen Jesus isn't very prominent in the sort of Catholic kind of imagery and and paintings and things. And it struck me that if we really knew who, I guess, Jesus as a man and as a risen saviour was, and if we really knew how awesome God was, we would be quite in awe and that would change us. And I think if you think of Jesus as a sort of a a baby or a dead person... It's not so scary. <laughs> you know, I think I think there's something to be said for coming into the presence of the holy God and, and actually kind of going, wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I suppose, would that be what we've looked at in 1 Corinthians, that the, the life of love, would that come as a result of seeing this fear of the Lord, the way of, of seeing Jesus in his true, true well, way? Well, if God is love, if God loves us, then surely the response to that is amazing you know we would want to love as well because Mm. we want to be like that awesome god and i think jesus had a really good thing to say to the religious leaders who were very hypocritical in his day and he said look you know if you're forgiven a little bit you don't forgive much but if you're forgiven a lot you tend to forgive a lot Mm. you you respond in in the same kind and i mean it's not that god is fearful in the sense that we should be afraid of him necessarily but there's something amazing about the fact that god doesn't hold stuff against us and will Mm. forgive us that i think is amazing and that does bring us to the point where we want to live a different life Mm. yeah the vice president of warburg who said that intimacy was the greatest casualty of the busy life he actually said that it was intimacy with god was the greatest casualty what do you think he meant I think you come back to and what you come back to this whatever religious background you come from and I was having a discussion with a friend who will you know who tells me that she is she is an atheist and she happens to be one of the most live, loving giving people I know who does a huge amount in the community and we were talking though about the fact that deeply deeply at the soul of everyone we want to have some meaning we want to know why we're here and we want to um contribute and be part of the community um so where where we want to have that meaning i think for me as a christian it's with god and if we don't stop and think about it if we don't stop about why are we here these few fleeting years while we are here on earth able to do something and come up with a greater meaning than it's to get the biggest bank balance or it's to win the most toys before we die we're not going to be satisfied Hmm. and to me 
for me, God is the answer in that and striving to um, be close to him or to understand what might be needed of me in this life is what gives some meaning. Mm. How about you, Anne? You know, when, when I look back on my life, there's such a difference between those those weeks, months, years when I just cruise along trying to do everything with you know my head down, buried in the sand sort of thing, and those weeks, months, years when I've really tried intentionally to connect to God and spend more time praying and, and actually f- trying to have that relationship with God that, that Jesus talked about. And I, I'm amazed that, you know, Jesus, who apparently was the son of God, constantly was walking off into the desert or up onto a mountaintop to pray. He was always withdrawing from the crowds who followed him everywhere to pray. And yet, you know, Jesus was the the son of God. He yes. was the most close to God of anybody, but he took time to pray. So if he did, I figure I need a lot more of that. <laughs> and, and, if, and if you're going to talk really about how do you find that meaning, how do you find that balance in your life? Yes, be busy. Yes, find ways to be more organised in your busyness so you can get through it. But you have to have time on your own as well. You have to have time to stop and think about it however you you find that um, because otherwise it all can rush by in a blur. Because this relates to another another question that came in about... Samantha said we deeply need intimacy. Why is it needed and not just a nice thing to have? What if I prefer space on my own? Well... In a way, intimacy, I mean, I'm a lawyer, so I'm going to define it. Intimacy <laughs> is time with yourself as well, isn't it? And it's time if you believe in, in a God with God. Otherwise, it's certainly time communing with nature or thinking about the things that matter. Um, we're all communal. We all want to contribute. We all want to love. We all want to be part of a, a group. But we also deeply need to know who we are and what matters to us. And we're not going to find that if you work 18 hours a day for 365 days a year. You need time out as well. So, Anne, Samantha, intimacy, how can we go beyond shallow relationships? Well, I always say just to think about it in advance and be a bit more intentional in our day-to-day lives. Sam's given some great examples, but the idea of of thinking about those people we want to have closer relationships with and, and make some plans ahead of time as to what to do. And it might even be just picking up the phone and saying, let's get together, let's have a dinner party, let's... I don't know, go to a movie together or not go to a movie where we're not talking, but let's just go and walk in the park. Mm. And that means that you're making time, you're doing something ahead of time or the little real quick response of writing a really lovely note to somebody that opens that conversation that's perhaps been neglected. Mm. Yeah. And I'd say there's a million opportunities in a day to do something with someone else, even when you're busy. Maybe rather than just a quick run by, you stop and have that conversation. You go for a walk around the block um, with someone and have a 10-minute break as well from what you're doing. Um, With your kids, if they're busy doing something, sit next to them while they're doing it. Even if they're doing something else, they'll be aware that you're there. Um, Get them involved take the opportunities that come up I mean as I say I'm not rediscovering anything here we've all got ideas ask other people how do you fit it in part of it is at the end of the day think what could I do a bit better tomorrow maybe that fight you just had with with your kid or something how could I have handled that differently we're all evolving all the time there's another thing you can do and the more you think about it the more you actually care about it the more likely you are to get there Let me leave you with the Logos for the day from 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. 
I look forward to you joining us next time for Logos Live. Please thank our guests today, Anne Winkle and Samantha Marks. Thank you.